0: It's not the killing of Terrence Crutcher or of Keith Scott alone that sends people into the street. It's the existence of ongoing, everyday, state-sanctioned, unpunished lethal violence against black men, women and children in a country with an unbroken history of it.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Making Contact, The Benjamin Dixon Show, Democracy Now, Counterspin, Start Making Sense from The Nation Magazine, Politically Reactive, Edge of Sports Radio, and the Young Turks. And the music in today's show are just a few of my suggestions for new national anthems, maybe, uh, that have at least slightly less racist origins.
2: The investigative journalism outlet ProPublica set out to analyze the data on hundreds of such cases for signs of racial disparity. Their startling findings were released in the report Deadly Force in Black and White
3: just from looking at the raw numbers the rate for uh black young males uh, black teenage males was just astronomical especially in the in the in the most recent years
2: that's Ryan Gabrielson in fact he and his colleagues found that the risk of being killed by the police was 21 times greater for black males than their white counterparts how did they get to that conclusion it starts with something called the supplementary homicide report
3: a supplementary homicide report is, uh, in total, it's, it's a database of all homicides known to law enforcement every single year. And in those
2: homicides is a subset categorized as felons killed by police.
3: And those are what law enforcement say are their justified homicides. And it's, uh, it's a, you know, woefully incomplete record set in that, you know, it maybe has probably half of all these homicides that actually take place in each year.
2: But despite the issues with the data, Gabrielson says it still shows something that many campaigners have said for years, that young black males are disproportionately killed by police. And it also tells us something about how the justification for those homicides has changed.
3: Is There was a really dramatic shift uh, that started in the mid-1980s
2: up until then, Gabrielson says law enforcement gave all kinds of reasons as justification for killing someone.
3: A lot of times it was they caught the person in the commission of of, of a crime. Uh, about a third of the time, though, uh, it was they said that the, the, the perpetrator uh, or the felon, as they characterize it, was resisting or fleeing arrest.
2: But something happened that would change all that. Uh, in
3: 1985, the U.S. Supreme Court instituted sort of its first rules uh, or limitations on when law enforcement can can use deadly force.
2: The decision came in a case called Tennessee versus Ghana, and those rules basically said that officers could not use deadly force unless the officer has probable cause to believe that their life or another person's life was at risk.
3: You know, it's, it's, it's still kind of wide open because it's, it's a subjective assessment in which whether or not the law enforcement officer had, you know, cause in their own head to feel that their life was at risk. And so that's pretty wide latitude. But it was still, you know, saying it basically said you can't shoot somebody purely because they're not complying with your commands to halt and be arrested.
2: And remember, up until 1985, that had been justification for killing a suspect.
3: And so you would have expected to see this drop off in homicides.
2: But Gabrielson says that's not what the data shows.
3: Instead of what we see is a change in how law enforcement justify them, where suddenly, instead of being, you know, a huge number of these cases being uh, described as, you know, the, the perpetrator was fleeing, they're, 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 they're the overwhelming Majority are described as officer was being assaulted, and that
2: stands out in particular because
3: that would suggest that violent crime against officers was going through the roof at a time of historic drops in violent crime rates for every other category of the population. So you have to ask: is it is it a change in in how police are describing the incidents, or is it a change in actual violence out there in the world? And and I don't have the answer to that, but I think that's something that that, that merits a great deal more scrutiny.
2: The ProPublica article, Deadly Force in Black and White, is online at ProPublica.org.
4: It's one thing to have a theory in your head and just be able to call it because it's common sense to you. It's another thing to actually hear audio of people confirming what you have already known for years. For years, we've been telling you that black men in particular are targeted by this system. And I've added. That they target us and they feel justified in targeting us because of statistics that are artificially inflated because they target us. This thing is bothering me. Let me. Um, it's kind of long. I don't know if I should play it again, but I want you to hear it again. Um You know, because it goes by quickly. And I want you to listen to some key phrases. Listen to how this officer is this this officer is letting his commanding officer know Officer Birch is letting the commanding officer know that I'm doing my job. You want me to do my job differently and not target the people who are violating and and jumping the uh, the subway and and skipping the fare. You don't want me to target them. You want me to target young black men because they're more likely to have a warrant. All right, listen again.
5: Who commits the crime? Who commits the crime? It's mostly teenagers, anywhere between the ages of 15 and 19, mostly male, Blacks, and Hispanics. Okay. Who are you stopping? Everybody. Wow. I stop everybody. Fifty-four tags of the 820. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five of those are female. Pass. Okay. Like I said, I stop everybody. I'm not targeting anybody. First of all... So you just told me who I, that guy does. Yeah, I know that, but it also there's also other people who are committing violations as well. I'm not so saying that so there's, there's an an not violations of violation, right. being male, black. Commit I commit crime? Plenty, plenty of people that write summonses too, are male blacks and male, male blacks. Not for the whole year. And I have you tell me for, for the whole year I only stopped two male blacks for summonses. Eight, twenty. No. January 1st, August twenty. Fifty-four tags, two male blacks, seven Hispanics, seven other, ten whites, three agents. So where are you targeting the perks that you just told me? like I said, if there's, if I don't see a person jumping over the turnstile, what am I supposed to do to him? That's these what I'm saying. I'm, these people are not going to pop. You're how do right. I know that? I, chance a that a female that Hispanic on. that I thought that she said they did pop, actually, for a warrant and I arrested her. Female Hispanics. The Hispanics that were supposed to be going up, that, that are committing the crime. The people that I... You think that you did going pop? I think she was part. I didn't know, put no thought into it. If you come up and you're getting and you'll come up a, a collar, I'm taking you in. This is what I see You describe to me who's committing the crime. You're fully aware of it. We're not targeting those people. I am. Ta- I'm targeting everybody who's male black. Whoever's out there. <laughs> I can't. If I catch. So you only saw two male blacks. Two male so you're blacks. you're saying that's what's in front of you, then yes, uh, that's all I saw. There's two male blacks for the whole year jumping in the trash. That's what you're saying is in front of you. I'm not. I, I, can't, I, I can't. I can't.
4: I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. Let the record forever and always reflect that what we have been telling you forever is so commonplace that this commanding officer doesn't have a single second damn thought about implementing and enforcing a quota as well as racial profiling. In fact, the situation is so common in this culture. So common that he feels as though he feels that it's absurd for this rookie officer, this young officer, not to racially profile because it is a part of police culture. Don't you ever damn it. Tell me blue lives matter as a means of silencing what we're talking about. Black lives matter. The proof is in the damn pudding. And because of how commonplace it is, this is not just a one off situation. Listen to the language. Listen to how easily it goes across his lips. Listen to how the expectation is you are rather absurd, Officer Birch, for not racially profiling. That lets you know that this is a systemic problem from top to bottom, from de Blasio down to the street cop. So I want every. Okay. I'm blowing my speaker. Every person who has ever tried to say it's a, uh, 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 it's, it's it's our imagination. We're exaggerating. We're just making this up. And black people are just criminal. You know why the statistics reflect that? It's because ignorant people like you allow this type of thing to happen. And as long as we stand by and let this happen. It will continue to target and inflict a systemic oppression on black young men.
6: On the boats and on the flames, they to America. Never looking back again. They to America. Oh don't see me so Traveling light today in the eye of the storm,
7: in the eye of
8: A Justice Department investigation has concluded Baltimore police have carried out a practice of racially discriminatory policing by systematically stopping, searching and arresting Black residents at a disproportionate rate. Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General Venita Gupta outlined the findings at a news conference in Baltimore Wednesday.
9: We conclude that there is reasonable cause to believe that BPD engages in a pattern or practice. Of conduct that violates the Constitution and federal anti-discrimination law. BPD engages in a pattern or practice of making unconstitutional stops, searches, and arrests, using enforcement strategies that produce severe and unjustified disparities in the rates of stops, searches, and arrests of African Americans, using excessive force, and retaliating against people engaging in constitutionally protected expression. These violations have deeply eroded the mutual trust between BPD and the community it serves, trust that is essential to effective policing as well as to officer and public safety. The problems in Baltimore didn't happen overnight or appear in a day. The pattern of practice that we found results from long-standing systemic deficiencies in the BPD.
8: The Justice Department launched the investigation following the death of Freddie Gray, who died in 2015 of spinal injuries sustained in police custody. Although charges were brought against six police officers over Gray's arrest and death, none has been convicted and all remaining charges have been dropped. Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General Venita Gupta outlined how African Americans are routinely targeted in Baltimore.
9: The city's African-American residents and African-American neighborhoods bore the brunt of this activity. Out of the data we surveyed, the police department made roughly 44% of its stops in two small, predominantly African-American districts that contain only 11% of the city's population. African-Americans accounted for 95% of the 410 individuals the police department stopped at least 10 times. Indeed, one African-American man was stopped 30 times in less than four years with none of the stops resulting in a citation or a criminal charge. We also found a pattern or practice of excessive force. For example, officers frequently resorted to physical force when a person did not immediately respond to verbal commands, even where the person was posing no imminent threat to the officer or others. Officers were ending up in unnecessarily violent confrontations with people in mental health, uh, with mental health disabilities. We have seen communities throughout the country that improved policies and enhanced training and de-escalation and dealing with people in crisis can actually enhance officer safety and reduce the need for force. BPD also violates the First Amendment by retaliating against individuals engaged in constitutionally protected activities. Officers frequently detain and arrest members of the public for engaging in speech that officers perceive to be critical uh, or disrespectful. And BPD officers use force against members of the public who are engaging in protected speech.
8: The 163-page report said, quote, supervisors have issued explicitly discriminatory orders, such as directing a shift to arrest all the black hoodies in a neighborhood." Unquote. The DOJ also found Baltimore police use unreasonable force against juveniles and people with mental health disabilities. Officers also showed gender bias in handling sexual assault investigations. For more, we're joined by two guests. Baynard Woods is a freelance journalist who writes for The Guardian. His recent article is headlined, To Baltimore's DOJ investigation into police finds vast racial disparity. He's editor-at-large for the Baltimore City Paper. and Hayes, activist and coordinator of Baltimore Block, a grassroots collective. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin with Baynard. Can you lay out these findings um, that the Justice Department has just released in this 163-page report?
6: Sure. I mean, it's, it's a really striking. On the one hand, it's what everyone and, and especially Baltimore's black residents have been saying, but the specificity of the data that was collected by the Department of Justice in the specific targeting of African American neighborhoods, which goes back to the city segregation that, um, because the city is so segregated by targeting certain neighborhoods, they're also targeting certain populations, specifically the city's black population. And so you just have these vast, as we were just hearing, these vast discrepancies of of more than 80 percent of all pedestrian stops are of African-Americans, 95 percent of all of the stops—of uh, all of the people have stopped more than 10 times. Um while driving. And so you see these and, and the Department of Justice is very clear in linking it back to the city's zero tolerance policy, um, which was set out to clear corners, and many of the the mid-level supervisors who were trained in that period are still directing their officers to behave in such a way. And so that single decision or series of decisions has these wide-ranging uh consequences that you were just
8: talking about. Baynard, can you explain what a terry stop is? Yeah, so a Terry stop
6: is the Terry vs. Ohio, comes from the the Terry vs. Ohio Supreme Court case, and it's what you're legally justified to do Um, if you're, if you want to pat someone down, if you believe, if you have reasonable, articulable suspicion that someone is engaged in criminal activity, you can detain them for a very brief period of time, um, in order to make sure that they aren't armed and to investigate. And this came up a lot in the Freddie Gray trial, in the Freddie Gray case of the trials of the officers that, it was an argument of whether he was arrested in that long period of detention or whether it was a Terry stop. And, uh, the prosecution continued to argue that. And the, the Department of Justice report backs it up that it was, it exceeded the norms of a Terry stop, which should be very brief and interrogatory. And then the person is free to go.
8: Um, and overall, um, why this, is so significant right now, the significance of these findings, um, among them uh, talking about one individual who has stopped how many dozens of times over just a few years, of course, African American? <laughs>
6: Yes. so there was a guy who was stopped 30 times over the course of the period of the investigation, and and none of the stops resulted in any charges, criminal charges, or even traffic citations. And you see this through the report over and over again. Even after excessive force is used, someone will be tased or beaten, punched in the face, and then no charges are ever brought um, against the individual.
10: As I was walking an endless bread line,  ¶ My landlord gave me a two-week deadline ¶¶ The local paper printed a better headline ¶¶ Ah, this land is not for you and me ¶¶ This land is their land, it is not our land ¶¶ From your plush apartment to your Cadillac car land ¶ From your Wall Street office to your Hollywood starland, oh, this land is not for you and me. And take your slogan and kindly stow it. If this is our land, you'd never know it. Let's get together and overthrow it. Hey, this land was made for you and me.
0: One note, among many, on corporate media reaction to the killing by police of, this week, Terrence Crutcher and Keith Scott. And that's just to say that when media report protests as African-Americans angry about the police killing of this unarmed black man, they're getting it wrong. It's not the killing of Terrence Crutcher or of Keith Scott alone that sends people into the street. It's the existence of ongoing Every day, state-sanctioned, unpunished lethal violence against black men, women, and children in a country with an unbroken history of it, of which whatever latest example is just that. Coverage that doesn't acknowledge that key fact is unlikely to advance the conversation.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products directly to you. No more hassling with the drugstores, locked-up razor fortresses, or their sky-high prices. Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of the greedy razor corporations, and they ship orders directly to your door. And right now, they're going to give you your first month free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com/best and pick a razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades and that's all there is to it For a first-class shave, choose their Executive Blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see why over 1 million members love Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products, now you can get your first month in the club for free, just pay for shipping. After that, it's just a few bucks a month, no long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it, so get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash bet today. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best.
11: Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, started protesting racist police practices by sitting during the national anthem during preseason games. That provoked a storm of controversy. And now, as the regular season starts, the stakes and the visibility and significance of his protests are much higher. For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Dave Zirin. He's sports editor of The Nation. He's the author of eight books on the politics of sports, most recently, Brazil's Dance with the Devil the World Cup, the Olympics, and the fight for democracy. He's a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now!, and he also hosts his own weekly podcast, Edge of Sports Radio, It's on Panoply. Dave, welcome back.
7: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
11: So last Sunday was opening day for the NFL. How big is the NFL's opening day for the USA?
7: Well, it's by far uh, the most popular sport in the United States. I mean, so opening day, of course, is the second most important day to the Super Bowl uh, in this year-long obsession that the United States has with football. And it's it's worth noting that over the last 20, 30 years, uh, viewership for all the big pro sports, uh, basketball, baseball, hockey, have dwindled as people have been, you know, found other outlets for their time, you know, from, you know, Facebook, computers, what have you, maybe some people going outside, who knows. And it's (laughs) interesting, though, that the National Football League has actually grown in popularity, grown in viewership, grown in numbers, while every other, not just sports, but every other form of popular entertainment has seen their viewership splinter. So that's why it's so big. That's why it's so important commercially and politically.
11: And this opening day also happened to be September 11th, the 15th anniversary of September 11th. Of course, an intense day of patriotism and flag-waving and memories of a terrible day in our history. George W. Bush, of course, was our president on September eleventh, two 2001. Did he attend the memorial ceremonies at the World Trade Center in New York on Sunday?
7: Oh, I think you know the answer to that one, John. Uh, no, that's not where George W. Bush was. He was in uh, Arlington, Texas, at the Dallas Cowboys opener um, against the New York Giants. He was part of the 9 11 festivities there. Uh, I've got festivities seems like such a ghoulish word, but when you think about the fact that both at the Cowboys Stadium and at stadiums around the country, they would have all of this pageantry. They, they let bald eagles loose to fly around the stadium. Oh. They had military warplanes flying overhead. They unfurled flags the size of small states. And all of this <laughs> w- was done. Uh, not just because the National Football League cares so much about September 11th, but there has been there is so much synergy, corporate synergy, political synergy, military synergy that exists between the National Football League and uh, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. I mean, it's no coincidence that the NFL has exploded in popularity over these last 15 years since 9-11. This has been part savvy marketing by the National Football League to ally itself with our permanent state of war and part savvy marketing by the Department of Defense and the Pentagon, which has pursued partnership after partnership with the National Football League.
11: Meanwhile, for the weeks leading up to opening day, Colin Kaepernick had been protesting against police violence against black people by sitting during the national anthem, The 15th anniversary of 9-11 must have been the toughest time imaginable for other NFL players to join him in acts of solidarity. What happened on Sunday?
7: Well, you did have a small, committed group of NFL players who either kneeled during the anthem or they raised their fists in the style of John Carlos and Tommy Smith from 1968— But in addition to that, uh, it's reported that there are now about 70 NFL players who are in a regular text message conversation with Colin Kaepernick to discuss what can be done to make themselves more visible. And so what I thought what you saw on Sunday was really just an unprecedented challenge to the NFL's power structure. I mean, the NFL usually does not brook dissent, it does not uh, brook players sitting during the anthem or raising their fists, it does not allow for that sort of thing. I mean, the NFL doesn't allow for players to have different colored shoelaces when they Uh take the field. I mean, they are that buttoned down. And yet here are players breaking that, and the NFL really has had to just sort of take a step back and let it happen. And that's Roger Goodell, the commissioner, but he's really the, the hand puppet of the 31 NFL owners. And they've clearly made it clear to him that uh, that there should not be some big crackdown on players who dissent. And I don't think it's because NFL owners have somehow magically morphed overnight into being people who care deeply about issues of uh, police violence, Black Lives Matter, and the importance of dissent. I don't think that's it at all. Um, I think what it is is that they realize that this incredibly lucrative uh, golden goose that is the National Football League, I mean, th- this could essentially— I don't know about kill the golden goose, but certainly make the golden goose not so willing to lay golden eggs if they put that crackdown on the players. Because you're talking about a league that is 70% African-American, and if you look at skill positions, it's actually much higher than 70%. In other words, the the players that people actually pay money to see – And yet, if you look in the ownership corridors, it's 0% African-American. Head coaches, 17% African-American. Executives, 22% African-American. So you're talking about an imbalance at work here, yet it's an imbalance that is also predicated on players accepting that imbalance. And so if players want to protest, they're going to protest. And NFL owners, I think, are looking at this situation and saying, we need to handle this in a very ginger fashion.
11: Kneeling during the national anthem, raising the fist during the national anthem. Dave, why are these black guys against the troops?
7: Well, I, I, I hear the smile in your voice, John. And um, and from the first time that Colin Kaepernick sitting during the anthem was noticed, he has made it perfectly clear that none of this has anything to do with the troops whatsoever. And that turning this into a discussion about whether or not it's disrespectful for the troops is just a way to delegitimize what it is they're doing. It's a way to take focus off it. It's a way to not speak about the fundamental message, which is the issue of police violence. And it's the issue of raising awareness about the fact that there's a gap between the values that the flag purports to represent and the actuality and lived experiences of people of color in the United States. That's what this has all been about from point one. Uh, for Colin Kaepernick and for people joining him. And when folks make it about the troops, what they're really trying to do is shut up these athletes. Now, I think Colin Kaepernick himself, not that some of these critics really care what he has to say, but he's had some of the best responses to this idea that it's disrespecting the troops. And one of his responses was to point out that some of the people that we've seen get brutalized on cameras uh, by the police are veterans. And he has pointed out uh, how it just abominable it is that people put on the the military uniform, fight overseas, and then come home only to be abused by police.
11: A lot of people, of course, have have, uh, objected to Kaepernick uh, kneeling for the national anthem. Prominent among them, Kate Upton, who tweeted, quote, this is unacceptable. You should be proud to be an American, close quote. I, I wasn't quite sure who Kate Upton was. I learned she is a supermodel who was on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I guess that gives her standing to talk about sports and politics.
7: Yeah, on on numerous occasions, Rob Lowe as well has said that players, you know, that would be the actor Rob Lowe, um, has said that players should have just stayed in the locker room beforehand. And, you know, they're really joining sides with people like a, a pastor in Alabama who said that players should shot who don't stand for the anthem. Uh, or just the army of, of Twitter bigots out there and white nationalists and like the resurgent uh, clan that we're seeing that's uh, and, and all, frankly, the entire Trump community is united as one uh, with what Donald Trump said to Colin Kaepernick, which he effectively gave him a, uh, a go back to Africa statement where he said, if Colin Kaepernick doesn't like this country, he should find somewhere else to live. And I think, once again, it, it just shows you the double standard as far as who's mm-hmm. allowed to trash this country and who isn't. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of things that also happened on Sunday. Um, in Philadelphia, uh, where fans have never been known to uh, be overly polite, um, uh, fans were uh, videotaped themselves singing the national anthem while stomping on Kaepernick's jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, in several um, uh, stadiums, Ah, uh, President Obama spoke over the jumbotron before the event with a speech about nine uh, eleven and sacrifice and first responders. And in Philadelphia and Baltimore, um fans booed him. And so you know, and, and keep in mind, the fans at stadiums, first of all, are overwhelmingly white. yeah, uh, I mean, uh, viewership, I could just say you seventy seven percent white of the NFL. And when you think about how the the expensive tickets are, and I'm also speaking as someone who's been to my share of NFL games. Uh, These are largely Caucasian affairs. And so that plus, you know, the Trump criticism, it goes back to this idea of who's allowed to criticize the country. So it's completely patriotic to boo the black president of the United States, but it's outrageous for a black football player to express any dissent.
11: Are there any uh, white players who've supported or joined in uh, these symbolic protests?
7: There are female white players for the WNBA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who have stood with their black teammate and made what is a very common sense argument about why they are standing uh, for Black Lives Matter and against police violence. And in a lot of respects, sports makes it the most common sense argument of all, because uh, part of the language of sports, part of the lexicon of sports is that a team is like a family. And so what these WNBA players have said is like, we care about our family being targeted by the police, and we care about the fact that our family is worried about this, and we will stand as one with them. I mean, it's a very easy argument to make. And while we've seen white players embrace Colin Kaepernick and give verbal support to Colin Kaepernick, we haven't seen any white NFL players actually take that knee or raise that fist. And what's so interesting about that is that there's been this sort of like language on the left in recent years about white allies and the need to sort of be quiet and stand in the background and let black activists take center stage. And I think what you see here, though, is like the crying need for white athletes to take a center stage against racism, not because white people should be in the leadership of anti-racist struggle. I'm not arguing that at all, but because it would take a tremendous amount of weight pressure and criticism off of the shoulders of the black athletes who've been leading up to this point.
11: Uh, let's talk about history here for a minute. This is not the first time in the history of American sports that black players have protested racism in America.
7: Not, not, not even close. And it's not the first time that um, athletes have protested the national anthem either. Uh, what makes this time different is that the athletes aren't being punished for it. The way Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the NBA player, was punished in 1996 when he was uh, kicked out of the league, when he was fined, when he was suspended, all because he wouldn't come out for the national anthem, even though there was no NBA rule that said anything about what players had to do during the anthem. Or you think about John Carlos and Tommy Smith, most famously, who raised their fist during the national anthem at the 68 games in Mexico City. And they were threatened with their medals being taken away. They were kicked out of the Olympic village and they eventually left uh, Mexico City before the Olympics were done and were pariahs um, in the Olympic and athletic community for years thereafter. This is a very different situation right now. And I spoke a little bit about it before, about it speaking to the racial imbalances between who has actual power in the NFL and who... Um, people are paying money to see, but it also speaks to the fact that there's a movement in the streets that uh, the people in power in the NFL are very conscious of, and there is a social media environment that allows players to really connect immediately with the people who care what they have to say, and that's very different from Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was isolated in his view and who in 1996 did not exactly have a large grassroots struggle around him that was looking to stand with him.
11: One last thing on the history, didn't Jackie Robinson write in his autobiography that he couldn't sing the anthem or salute the flag because, quote, I know that I am a black man in a white world?
7: Yeah, he he wrote that. It's interesting, like in 1972, at the end of his life, and said his opinion hasn't changed from 1947 when he came into the league or uh, I believe it was uh, uh, when he was born, and I believe that was 1919. So he, he gave these dates and said, in these years, that fundamental truth has not changed for me. And Jackie Robinson, interestingly enough, is, of course, also a World War II veteran. So, I mean, this idea that uh, people who are protesting the flag, particularly people of color, are somehow disrespectful to vets, uh, that's disproven by the memory of Jackie Robinson. It's all, and also it's disproven by a worldwide trending hashtag, Veterans for Kaepernick that has come up in the last couple of weeks of vets who are taking pictures of themselves and posting them, of them sitting or kneeling during the anthem at sporting events to show like, hey, don't use this sort of like mythical vet who hates free speech and hates people of color speaking out about police brutality as some sort of tool to beat Colin Kaepernick over the head with.
6: What is this land? America, so many travel there. i
1: Cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
12: Did us a great service because he shined a light on some things that most of us didn't know. Like, most of us did not know how huge of a bigot Francis Scott Key, Mm. who wrote The (laughs) Star-Spangled Banner, that was not a widely known fact. No, it was not. That was not. Francis Scott Key did did not see this coming. No, he did not. As a matter of fact, what's wild about that is most people would say like back back in the time of slavery, a lot of people saw Francis Scott Key as like enemy number one. I mean, literally, he was he was not just a songwriter; he was the district attorney for Washington D.C. Jesus, and he fought against uh, uh, abolitionists. He even made giving ab- abolitionist speeches illegal in D.C. His family owned plantations for multiple generations. He himself. As much as one I, I I hate to even use the word slave owner. These were human beings. He owned other human beings as property. And and so one, we have the we have the fact that he was not just a man who owned human beings, but he was a terrible bigot. And 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 even beyond that, we now have learned about this like third stanza mm. of the Star Spangled Banner where he talks about and kind of celebrates the murder of slaves. And here's what's, here's what's ugly about it, that the phrase land of the free and home of the brave in the third stanza was created to rhyme with slave and grave.
11: And now the creepiest part of the Star Spangled Banner, a song filled with creepy parts. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph thought wave. Getting my Marvin Gaye on at the NBA All-Star Game. Or the land of the free and the home. Of the brave, which conveniently rhymes with slave, also it horrifyingly rhymes with grave. American Idol, I should have auditioned.
12: And it's like, oh my God, my whole life we've had this phrase, land of the free and home of the brave, and this man created it to rhyme with his sentence about putting slaves in their grave. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, even beyond what Colin Kaepernick is saying, maybe this just should not be our national anthem.
7: Now I've got two sets of choice words. This has been such a swirling week of athletic struggle that I've got words for both all of the people who protested this past Sunday at NFL stadiums as the anthem played, and I've got words for everybody out there who says about Colin Kaepernick's protest against police violence that they agree with the cause, but just don't agree with the methods that he is using. So first, let's talk about last Sunday in the NFL. Where a small group of players risked their careers, their endorsements, and their livelihoods. And they did so through the simple act of refusal. They refuse to be a prop for the cameras. They refuse to swallow their concerns about racism and police violence in order to please the needs of their employers. They refuse to be intimidated by sports radio talkers bashing their character or an online army of shameless thugs threatening their lives with the casual click of somebody ordering a book off of Amazon. They stood in the proudest tradition of athletes who used their platform for social change, and they have already felt a backlash that almost note for note would ring familiar to anyone acquainted with what that last generation had to endure. Before naming the players who chose to stand against the current, it is worth setting the stage. Last Sunday was less a current than a red, white, and blue tsunami. This was the opening day of the NFL season, by an exponential degree, the most popular sports league in the United States, and it was September 11th, 2016, the 15th anniversary of the horrific attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Those assaults killed thousands of innocent people. They also launched an unprecedented attack on civil liberties, the scapegoating of an entire religion, and an illegal war in Iraq that continues to produce an unfathomable body count. The leader of these atrocities, George W. Bush, should have had to answer for his actions. Instead, there he was on Sunday in Arlington, Texas, tossing the coin for the nationally televised game between the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Giants. The Cowboys were not alone in bringing out the big guns. President Obama spoke over the jumbotron in Seattle, and Vice President Joe Biden was live in Philadelphia. Dick Cheney was at an undisclosed location. But every stadium, though, speaking of big guns, had troops march onto the field with flags roughly the size of Rhode Island. Warplanes flew overhead. Even bald eagles, actual, real life bald eagles, were set free to soar for the cameras. Like those majestic eagles, the NFL has ascended to new heights these last 15 years by pinning the image of their league to our permanent state of war. The Pentagon has made sure that this has been a mutually beneficial relationship, tying military recruitment, staged salute-the-troops events, and a hyper-militarized form of patriotism to the NFL's brand. Journalist Sean Scott broke this down in a masterful excavation last week on Sports Illustrated's website in an article titled, How the NFL Sells and Profits from the Inextricable Link Between Football and War. Subtle as a blowtorch and well worth the read. But in other words, nothing that happened Sunday with its big-budget patriotic pageantry should have surprised anybody. It was business as usual. The true shock and awe was the presence of a small group of players who took that moment instead to express dissent. To be clear, these were not gestures against war or the national security state. They were acts of solidarity with 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick's anthem demonstrations against police violence. They were protests aimed at stating the simple idea that there is a gap between the values that the flag claims to represent and the deadly realities of racism. They were also, whether intentional or not, Declarations that they would not be intimidated by the backlash felt by Kaepernick or Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall, who took a knee on Thursday and promptly lost an endorsement deal. As the star-spangled banner played around the country... Two players on the New England Patriots, Martellus Bennett and Devin McCourty, and three players on the Tennessee Titans, Jarrell Casey, Wesley Woodyard, and Jason McCourty, and Marcus Peters of the Kansas City Chiefs, raised their fists during or immediately after the anthem. In addition, four players on the Miami Dolphins, Kenny Stills, Michael Thomas, Arian Foster, and Jelani Jenkins, took a knee during the anthem. The Dolphins gesture was all the more dramatic because it took place across the field from the Seattle Seahawks who linked arms in a gesture of team unity and solidarity after efforts to make some sort of statement about police brutality were snuffed out because according to the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport, the Seahawks originally planned to kneel together, hand over their hearts, but some players close with the military objected. Never mind that these protests have had nothing to do with the military. This mere perception was enough to suppress a small group of proudly outspoken Seahawks players who wanted to show Kaepernick that they were on his side. This endless howl that any action on Sunday should be interpreted as being, quote, against the troops and disrespectful to the memory of 9-11, no matter the actual words of troops or 9-11 families, stretched from a sector of the Seahawks locker room to anonymous Twitter bigots to celebrities Rob Lowe and Kate Upton. It's an absurd argument meant to derail and delegitimize the actual issue that's trying to be raised, the extrajudicial killings of black people. The pressure to stay in line was strong enough to compel a group of political players in Seattle to stand in line. But the capitulation of the Seahawks was overshadowed by these other gestures that not only defy the political agenda of the league, but also its top-down corporate structure. They are gestures that stand as a rebuke to those in the NFL audience that cheer for black bodies on the field, but rage against black voices. Jay Busby at Yahoo Sports called what is happening a, quote, quiet insurrection, end quote. It is an apt description, but this is an insurrection we can only see if we get beyond the noise. And now number two, this is the second piece of choice words, and it's for everybody who says that they agree with Colin Kaepernick's cause against police violence, but gosh darn it, they just don't like the methods. Look, the most common response to Colin Kaepernick's anthem protest against police violence in the corridors of the sports world has been exactly that. I support his goal, but not his methods. This has been the line from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to Hall of Fame receiver Jerry Rice to quarterbacks Drew Brees and Russell Wilson. It's a perspective that is extended to liberal commentators, encapsulated in cringeworthy fashion by Atlantic columnist Peter Beinert, who wrote a piece on September 1st titled How Colin Kaepernick's Protest Misfired. Yes, September 1st, mere days after Kaepernick went public with his stand and amid a whirlwind of coverage, Beinert was there to preemptively judge it a failure because openly protesting the flag, quote, opens him up to charges of disrespect, end quote. Beinert bends over backwards to say that while he believes police violence and racism to be bad things, quote, tactically, there is a better way, end quote. One wonders if we'll see a mea culpa from Beinert and many others, because as the NFL season begins, Kaepernick is looking like a tactical maestro. Not only did his team, the San Francisco 49ers, keep him on the roster when many predicted he would be cut, but the team pledged $1 million to organizations dedicated to, quote, the cause of improving racial and economic inequality and fostering communication and collaboration between law enforcement and the communities they serve here in the Bay Area, end quote. What Goodell, Jerry Rice, and Peter Beinert have in common is that they are 2016 textbook examples of Martin Luther King Jr.'s searing description of the white moderate in Letter from a Birmingham Jail when he wrote, quote, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season, End quote. The season is clearly now. Kaepernick's former college teammate, Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall, took a knee on national television on Thursday night in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. And then Marshall also pledged money to a variety of charities. The linebackers now joined volleyball players, soccer players, scores of veterans in the stands, and fellow football players, particularly high school football players, who are hearing the anthem, thinking about police violence, and taking a knee. Then there are the Seattle Seahawks. The entire team performed a team-wide protest on Sunday that, in the words of receiver Doug Baldwin, was aimed to, quote, Bring people together. Our team will honor the country and flag in a pregame demonstration of unity. End quote. Look, fighting police violence is not a team building exercise. And as everybody saw on Sunday, what the Seattle Seahawks basically accomplished was the goal of a team building exercise. All the Seahawks accomplished was muddying Kaepernick's foundational message that we have, quote, bodies in the street and police are getting away with murder. End quote. Yet while we should be wary as more and more players and teams rush to say Me Too, it is a sign that Kaepernick is winning. Maybe others will consciously or unconsciously blur the central motivation of Kaepernick's protest, but that always happens when people realize that you are walking with the wind. It is best to celebrate that people are rushing to Kaepernick's side while also fighting to amplify the actual message, which is not to honor the country, but to challenge the country to resist police violence and extrajudicial killings. Some will continue to bash these methods. Others will co-opt and commodify. But Kaepernick is giving us a textbook example of what Howard Zinn said, which is especially apt this presidential season. What matters most is not who is sitting in the White House, but who is sitting in. In this case, it's kneeling, not sitting, and it has been strikingly effective.
1: the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell your legislators to sign the NAACP Pledge to Preserve and Protect Our Lives. Colin Kaepernick is successfully keeping a difficult conversation in the spotlight that many Americans would rather ignore. The best way to show support for him and his resilience under intense public ridicule is to directly support reforms to correct the systemic racial injustice in this country. In the wake of the recent police shooting of Terrence Crutcher, an unarmed black man who was waiting for help on the side of the road in Tulsa, Oklahoma after his car broke down, the NAACP released a statement encouraging people to take to the streets and the polls, with a clear path for reform. The statement went on to say that, quote, the video footage of Crutcher's death tragically and horrifically shows us the futility of our cry, hands up, don't shoot, unquote. In the statement, the NAACP asked all elected officials and candidates to sign their Pledge to Preserve and Protect Our Lives, which acts as a promise to, one, cut off funding to law enforcement agencies that discriminate, 2. Ensure independent investigation of law enforcement agencies. 3. Support detailed data reporting about police stops and uses of force. 4. Support comprehensive standards governing the use of force. And 5. Support civilian oversight of policing. Ask your legislator or candidates to sign this pledge before November and tell them your vote depends on it. Just go to NAACP.org and click on their News section in the side menu to find the organization's statement on Terrence Crutcher and the link to the pledge within the statement. You can also show your support for racial justice on social media by using the NAACP hashtag StayWokeAndVote to remind people that the stakes are high in this election. So make fighting for racial justice and reining in abuse of power by police part of your theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like the NAACP, Surge, that's showing up for racial justice, million Hoodies for Justice, and other organizations fighting to change the status quo. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if injecting some justice back into our justice system is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling legislators to sign the NAAC pledge via social media so that others in your network can get involved.
7: Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Wichelt, Joe DiMaggio.
13: Americans learned a lot about ourselves this week, and we have 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick to thank for it. During a preseason game, Cap chose to stay seated when the national anthem was played. He explained why in a subsequent post-game interview. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that
14: needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now.
13: So what did we learn? Well, for one, we discovered that a lot of people think it's disgraceful that a professional athlete would sit during the National Anthem to draw attention to the plight of African Americans, and that many of these people have a favorite word to describe that kind of athlete. A lot of us also learned something new about the Star-Spangled Banner. Most of us already know that the Star-Spangled Banner was written by Francis Scott Key to commemorate the U.S.'s successful defense of Baltimore's Fort McHenry from the British during the War of 1812. But what many of us didn't know is that the anthem doesn't end after the first verse, and that the third verse includes this bit. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. As The Intercept's John Schwartz pointed out, this line refers to the killing of American slaves who fled from their owners during the war to fight on the side of the British, who promised to grant the slaves freedom after the war. So it turns out that the American anthem itself celebrates the killing of African Americans. That's irony for you. Never one to pass up an opportunity to talk with cameras around, Donald Trump said that Kaepernick should find a country that works better for him.
5: I think it's, I think it's a terrible thing. And,
14: uh, you know, he'll, uh, maybe he should find a country that works better for him. Let him try.
13: It won't happen. Trump is himself an expert in not leaving America, if only based on the five draft deferments he received during the Vietnam War. Even those who did not object to Kaep's political stance took issue with his method of protest. As New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees said, the flag is, quote, sacred. And while Brees has a point that for many Americans, patriotism has essentially become a religion, and as a result, cannot be questioned, I'm not sure we need to treat the flag quite as gingerly as many of Kaepernick's critics seem to feel. After all, this country has been through a lot. A devastating civil war, two world wars, the Great Depression, the September 11th attacks, the Taylor Swift-Calvin Harris breakup, and it's still going strong. And yet, some people feel that the flag should be completely protected from use as a prop when criticizing what's going on in the country it represents. That during the national anthem, we need to create, for want of a better term, a safe space for the flag. It's one thing to criticize the United States, but to do so during the national anthem, well, that's just downright offensive. It's not, well, politically correct. Thankfully, as a nation, we've been through this dance before. In the 1960s, black athletes like Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, and Tommy Smith all leveraged their athletic prowess and the powerful symbolism of the flag to raise awareness about the struggles faced by African-Americans. At the time, they were vilified, called all sorts of colorful names, and received death threats, yet today we honor them as national heroes and legends in the struggle for civil rights. So if there's one more thing we can learn from this latest incident, it's that we should focus the conversation on whether we agree with the content of what people say, rather than what harm they're ostensibly doing to the flag when they say it. Because let's be honest, The American flag has revived much, much worse.
1: We just heard clips today from Making Contact, who explained the report Deadly Force in Black and White, Benjamin Dixon, who played and discussed the recording of the commanding police officer instructing a cop to target men of color, Democracy Now! reported on the Justice Department report on the racist and illegal policing practices in Baltimore, Counterspin explained why the media gets it wrong when they fail to explain the full context of protests against police, Start Making Sense from the Nation spoke with Dave Zirin about the Colin Kaepernick protest. Politically Reactive highlighted what we learned about the national anthem thanks to the Kaepernick protest. Dave Zirin, this time on his show, Edge of Sports, laid out his comments about the protesters and their detractors. Our activism for today is for you to push your legislators to sign the NAACP pledge for our lives and, of course, to stay woke and vote. And finally, we just heard Malcolm Fleshner from the Young Turks explain why focusing on the sanctity of the flag is missing the point entirely. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hey Jay, this is Nick Collins from Colorado. Uh, Last week I had the privilege of living and working at the Standing Rock Camps that Stand in Resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was one of the most profound and moving experiences I've ever had the fortune to learn from. The No DAPL movement is changing the world. It has manifested the largest unification of First Nations ever, bringing upwards of 280 tribes together uniting nations that have had decades of conflict. And many of the elders at the camp explained that it was like nothing that they had ever seen before or could have imagined happening. I fervently believe Standing Rock has a medicine our world so desperately needs to heal. Even as a settler, I was welcomed with love and open arms. In fact, it was the most loving, inspired, and grounded community I've ever been a part of. Standing Rock changed me and has given me new eyes and a new heart with which to understand the world. If you can go to Standing Rock, even for a few days, please go. Not only does the movement need your support, but you will grow and develop immensely from the experience. Everyone I spoke with at the camp had similar things to say regarding its power to change lives, and many share that their days at the camp were the happiest, most fulfilling, and most real days they have had in their lives, sentiments that I strongly resonate with. I think that Standing Rock is really creating a, a plan um, or a, a format for how we can change the world, and I think all of your listeners are benefiting immensely from from sharing in that experience. Uh, similarly, if you can make a monetary donation to help the protectors buy supplies for setting up their winter camp, which is desperately needed for their survival through the brutal winter, please do so. There are a number of funds that you, funds that you can donate to. Uh, and to find out more about them, you can go to Yes Magazine's recent article titled, How You Can Support Standing Rock. Thanks for all you do. Uh home.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And just one last thought on the anthem question. Uh, Let's not forget the most obvious choice of all, American Pie. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while you see using that as our national anthem would even solve the whole sit, stand kneel controversy because of course, I would insist that they always play and sing the eight and a half minute version. So, everyone would be sitting or kneeling or slouching or leaning or otherwise just trying to keep themselves upright. I mean, you cannot expect Americans to stand up for eight and a half minutes straight. So, problem solved. Uh, now, to follow up on uh, the call we just heard, we just it's totally unrelated, but somewhat related. I, I happen to get a message from a listener with a very similar situation going on to the Dakota Access Pipeline down in Big Bend, Texas. Listener writes, I am from North Dakota, and I now live in the pristine area of the Big Bend in far west Texas. ETP, they're the same folks threatening up north laying their pipeline. Uh, They are laying a pipeline here, threatening our water, our archaeological and sacred grounds, our dark skies, and our future right now. The Native Americans from the group AIM Central Texas, that's A-I-M, American Indian Movement, are on their way now to the small town of Alpine, Texas, for a big march to an vigil at the historic site that is being destroyed right now. If you look at a map of the spaghetti that are pipelines across the country, the Big Bend has not one noodle yet. So, wrote in asking for my help spreading the word You can get all the details you want at uh, Twitter and Facebook, our DefendBigBend, and of course DefendBigBend.org. So Energy Transfer Partners, this is the same company, uh, they are proposing a pipeline that could potentially provide the infrastructure necessary to open the area to fracking. Of course, that's doubly and triply bad for all kinds of reasons. And the news on the Defend Big Bend website says that 34 local landowners have already been served with eminent domain lawsuits so far, that's as of March 21st, and under Texas law, a pipeline company is not even required to prove that its facilities will be in the public good. That's, that was sort of the idea behind eminent domain, uh, it turns out in Texas that doesn't matter, Uh, nor is there any means for a landowner to challenge the eminent domain ruling. Awesome. Uh, So if you're in the region, there is a Solidarity March going on in support of Standing Rock and to bring attention to their own impending pipeline this Friday, September 30th in Alpine, Texas. If you're in the area, definitely just go to the website for all the details. Again, defendbigbend.org. Keep the comments coming in. As always, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And And for the details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com.